Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bible, please. I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages this morning, uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. We're going to look at them side by side, if you will, as our jumping off point today in this uh, concluding message of our brief series, The Art of Good Decision Making. The Art of Good Decision Making. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. And here is the key concept Uh, for our message today. Motives and methods matter. Motives and methods in decision-making, it matters so that we can make good decisions. As you find those two passages and just kind of keep them handy, we are all facing decisions. We face decisions every day, and many of those choices that we need to make on a daily basis will be influential regarding how the rest of our life will go in one way or another. And decision-making would be easy if we knew the future, right? It would be simple to make decisions if we always had the answers to all the questions that come our way. But we don't have the answers. And that reminds me of a, a story about a college professor and a young lady who found themselves in the same row in a plane that was bound for Boston. She was settling in, getting ready for the plane flight. She found herself a book, and she was very going to be very content just to read the book and keep to herself for that flight. But the professor it was one of those talkative folks who liked to talk to the people around them in the plane. So he started engaging her in conversation. And she tried to give the signals that she was just about the pleasantries but didn't want to uh, talk a whole lot, but he wasn't taking no for an answer. And so she started conversing with him, and he suggested that to make the time go faster, they play a game. And she said, okay. And she said, he said, this is the game. I'm going to ask you a question. And if you don't know the answer to the question, you pay me $5. And then you ask me a question. And if I don't know the answer to the question, I'll pay you $500. Obviously, he was very confident in his knowledge here. And so uh, she said, okay, so what's the first question? So his first question was this, what's the distance from the earth to the moon? She didn't even pause, got her purse out immediately, took out a $5 bill. Here you go, I don't know. Now, the distance is 238,900 miles. That fact has nothing to do with this story, but it has to do with some of you who are going to be bothered by not knowing that (laughs) and not listen to what I say for the rest of the message. So I can already see you Googling distance to the earth, you know. 
So that's it, 238,900. So anyway, it's her, her turn now. And so she asks the question, what goes up a hill with three legs but comes down with four? Now he's stumped. He has no idea what goes up a hill with three legs and come da- comes down with four. He pays for the Wi-Fi on the plane to Google that question, couldn't get anything, you know. And so it, with a huff, he says, I don't know. And he takes out five $100 bills and counts them out on her lap. One, two, three, four, five. And with that, she picks up her book. And he says, wait a minute. What is it that goes up a hill with three legs and come down, comes down with four? She takes out a $5 bill and says, I don't know. (laughs) And then went back to her book. The point is this. We don't know all the answers, just like she didn't know all the answers. But she was not so dumb. And neither are you. You don't know all the answers. You don't know the future. But you have a way, that God has given us a way to make good and godly decisions. And that's what we're talking about in these two messages. Last week, we looked at the fact that God has a will for us. He has a will for the world, the will for in his sovereign will, a will for all of time. And he has various levels of will. But we ended by looking last week at some principles uh, that we can think of by way of de- making decisions for his, his individual will for us, for each of us in terms of how we are to live the life that we have before us. And today I want to talk to you about some of the motives that must be present as you make those decisions and the methods for making good and godly choices. And to get there, we're going to start by reading the two verses that I had you find. First of all, in that order, Deuteronomy 6.5 and then Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.5 says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then over in Leviticus 19.18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, I read those verses together in that order, even though they're not found together in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. I read them together in that order to maybe spark a flame of recognition in your mind. Because there is a situation in the life of Jesus Christ where these verses are used. What happens is this. A specialist in the Old Testament law comes to Jesus And he comes to Jesus to try to test him. Now, this scene is recorded in Luke chapter 10. He comes and he asks him a question. And the question he asks is, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the fact is that that's not a sincere question. He's not really inquiring of Jesus. Rather, it's a challenge. It's a test. The lawyer is playing a game with Jesus. But we learn that Jesus doesn't really play games. And so as that question comes to him, he turns it back to the lawyer and says, well, what is written in the law? I mean, after all, you're an expert in the law. So all of a sudden, all eyes are on this lawyer. And the lawyer comes up with an answer. In Luke 10, 27, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. He takes the essence of these two verses and he puts them together and he makes that response to Jesus. Basically, it boils down to love God and love others. Now, we know 
that as we are to love God with our soul, all of our soul and mind, first you have to place your trust in Him, which means putting faith in what Jesus did on the cross for us. On this side of the cross, we know that. But for the moment, in that setting, in that situation, Jesus says, you're right, well done. That's what's called for. But remember, the lawyer didn't ask the question to get an answer. The lawyer asked the question to take Jesus down a notch. And so now he feels that he has lost in this exchange. So he pushes it even further. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? And with that, Jesus tells one of the most beloved parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he makes the point in that parable, everyone is your neighbor. Even those people that you would despise and look down on. Because at that time, among the Jews, the mixed-race Samaritans were widely despised. But back to the verse. The verse speaks about motive, motive for all of life, which translates into motive for decision-making, the motive of love for God and love for others. That motive is at the heart of good and godly decision-making demonstrating love for God and love for others. A God-honoring decision will flow from the motive of love. But sometimes we're confused about love. I remember the philosopher Immanuel Kant used to mock the Scriptures on this point. He would make fun of the Bible as the Bible commands us to love. And the point that he would make is you can't command love. And he's right if we define love as an emotion because you cannot command an emotion. I have a clear memory. I've shared it with you before. It's a memory from my grade school years, and it's it's a scene that I remember from third grade. For whatever reason, our teacher was at the end of her rope with our class. Now, I don't think it was anything that I did. I may be wrong. But she was at the end of her rope, and I remember her standing in front of the class. The setting was that we were needing to get organized to go down to an assembly, okay? And uh, I don't know what, we weren't cooperating. Something was going wrong with that. And I remember her standing in front of the class, red-faced, with clenched fists, saying, Children, you will line up, you will go down to this assembly, and you will like it. (laughs) And I thought... In my third grade mind, you can make me go, but you can't make me like it. Did you catch that? Third grade, I'm already thinking like Immanuel Kant. Wow. Okay, anyway, a little sidelight there. Pretty impressive, I must say. Come to think of it, maybe I was the problem. I don't know. But in any event, the point is, that's correct. You cannot make someone have an emotion. You can't command an emotion. And that is why when the Bible uses the word agape for love, when we translate that word, which is what Luke is using here, when we translate that word uh, love, we're not really talking about an emotion. Because the Bible means by agape, it is the act of the will to put the interests of another person first. That's agape. The interests of another person, putting those first. It's action-oriented. That is why in the most ancient translations of the Bible into English, it's not love that they use to translate agape. 
It's charity. It pictures that this is an action. It spoke of doing something that's putting someone else first. So good decisions like good deeds flow from good motives. Love calls me to make a decision that's going to be beneficial for others, putting them first. And it starts with my love for God. Love for God in decision-making means I must choose those things that pursues that which honors God, that mirrors the things that He cares about. That's going to be a good decision if I'm making the kind of decision that puts me in line with what God cares about in the world. In other words, the thing that makes God look good. Those are good decisions. We see the opposite of that all too often. We see the opposite of that even in Scripture. I remember a situation in Corinthians when the Apostle Paul is writing to that church in Corinth and he's correcting them about a specific situation that's going on. They're having business disputes in the church between one another and they're taking those business disputes into the secular court in Corinth and suing one another for profit. And Paul is saying, how can you do this? He makes two points. Number one, you should be able to settle this yourselves without dragging the dispute into the secular courts. When you're doing that, you are dragging the name of Jesus in the mud and the reputation of the church. But secondly, why are you so concerned about winning? Rather, just lose. Don't go after the prophet but just kind of give in to one another because in what you're doing, you're making Jesus look bad and you're putting dishonor on the cause of Christ. See, Paul says, this matters. When my decisions are fueled by love for God, I'm going to ask the, ask the question, is what I'm doing honoring to the Lord or dishonoring to Him? What choice can I make in this decision that will lift Him up? But also we're called to be motivated by love for others. What will be the best thing for the people that I love, the people that I know? As I wrestle with this decision, what's going to be really a gift of love to them? Here's the thing. The best thing is often not what they want. What they want might not be the best thing in terms of the definition that God brings for true love and compassion for them. So how can I honor God in this decision? And how can I demonstrate love in this decision? These are consciously held motives if you're going to make good good and godly choices. And then there's the motive of self-awareness. I'm adding this to the, uh, to the matrix here. It's not really drawn out of the verse per se, but I think it's very important. I won't spend a lot of time, but if you've been around for a while, you know that I believe completely that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have what we call a unique divine design, that God has put into you a unique combination of your gifts, your experiences, your uh, thoughts, the things that you care about, your personality, temperament, all those kinds of things, and that is uniquely you. And understanding that is essential to make choices that are for you wise in keeping with what God would have you to do in life. That is why we're teaching this seminar once again starting on September 9th. 
taking you through the components of a divine design in an interactive way. And I encourage you to go if you haven't yet gone. Because understanding that is going to help you make decisions. You're probably pulled in a thousand different directions. All kinds of choices coming at you. Sometimes they're all good. How are you going to make a distinction between what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to? Understanding how God has wired you will help you make that distinction. And God gives us that sense of self-awareness. The Apostle Paul regularly in his letters comes back to the idea of that we are each uniquely gifted. And God has given us gifts so that we will use those gifts and understand the way that he wants us to serve him. It helps us to make determination when decision is called for. So, love for God, love for others, and a sense of self-awareness. These are the motives that we must have as we're seeking to make good and godly decisions. But what about the method? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now that first phrase there, be careful, the word is actually look carefully. In other words, be on your guard. Be alert. And the the point that Paul's making is that there is a struggle going on for your soul and for your life. Be alert that you have an enemy out there, the enemy who was working in the days that we live to kind of pull you away from the path that God would have for you. So be alert as Christ followers. One one man has said, when you become a Christ follower, you, you stop chasing sin, but sin starts chasing you. Be alert for that. It also means do your homework. A lot of times we're going to be asked to make decisions, and we don't know all the facts about those decisions. But the facts are there to be known if we would just do our homework. How very often I've sat and talked to people after a decision and it didn't go the way they wanted wanted it to go, and so many times it's, well, I should have looked into that. Or I should have thought about that ahead of time. Or I wish I had called so-and-so before I did that. See, do your homework means check the facts. It means look things up. It means talk things over. Gain that pause before I jump into this to make sure that I'm giving it a good chance and a good look from all sides. All of that is be alert. And then be wise. Because wisdom is taking what is known and applying the facts that I know about this situation in the best way possible to my choice. That's, that's wisdom. That's the difference between being smart and being wise. A lot of people are smart, but they're not wise in the way that they apply what they know. Think of the absent-minded professor who is you know, brilliant in his field but kind of stumbles through life. We are called to be wise, which is taking that knowledge and putting it the best way possible. And where does wisdom start? Well, the Bible is clear on that. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon repeats that in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not all there is to wisdom, but wisdom starts there. You're not going to get to true wisdom without a right respect and reverence for God. And all that that implies. And so wisdom begins with understanding who I am in relationship to God Almighty. I think that means that wisdom begins in a life of prayer. Making a good and godly decision will not happen if we are not people of prayer. Taking our choices to God in prayer 
asking for him, from him to get guidance and direction. All of that is wisdom. I am not going to be able to apply what I find out in my study and doing my homework about this decision. I'm not going to be able to apply it rightly if I am not surrendered to God. What I will do is make a decision that sends me off in a direction that I don't want to go, off-center. So be alert and be wise, which means be prayerful. And in the process of making this decision, gain godly counsel. That's part of the method, the good method. The Bible says it over and over and over again. Here's an example, Proverbs 19:20. Listen to advice and accept instruction. In the end, you will be wise. That theme runs throughout the book of Proverbs. The whole point is that we're not supposed to go through this life alone. We are not meant to live the Christian life alone. We are meant to be in community and we are meant to be talking with one another helping one another along. It reminds me of a story about a businessman who paid for golf lessons. This guy, he was a CEO in his company, you know, really kind of, you know, a powerful personality. He paid a pro to help him with his uh, golf game. And they went to a driving range. And there at the driving range, the pro started telling him about his stance, about his backswing, about how he approached the ball, all seeking ways that he could hit better shots and this kind of thing. But what started to happen as the pro was coaching this man about uh, his golf game was that the guy kind of always argued with the pro. He'd talk about, you know, changing his backswing a little bit, and, and the, the businessman would make up reasons for why he does it this way. Well, this is working for me, or this is comfortable, or I like it this way. And, and everything that the pro suggested, the guy always had like an argument back. So eventually, in the midst of this, the pro starts agreeing with the man. He said, oh, you're doing it just right. Just keep what you're doing. Looks good. It's fine. No problem, you know. And, and at the end of the session, the guy basically didn't learn anything, didn't change anything, but he felt really good about himself. And he put his golf clubs away and walked, walked away. And a man was listening to this whole thing, just a few, you know, booths over in this driving range. And the man came up to the pro and he said, what happened? Here you were in, in the middle of your session with the guy. All of a sudden, you started agreeing with him. And the pro said this, I've been in this job long enough to know that some people are paying me not for advice. They're paying me for an echo. And if that's what you want when you seek godly counsel, you're never going to find the good decision-making that God would have you uh, do. We're not looking for an echo. We're looking for advice. We're looking for advice from those who have been there before. We're looking for advice from those who we know are, are those who are godly people seeking to do His will. So first of all, it means in seeking godly counsel, be selective. Be selective in who you gain godly counsel from. There's a lot of people who will be happy to give you advice. A lot of you people will be pleased to give you a piece of their mind. The question is, can they spare that piece that they're giving to you? You know, maybe not. It may not be so good. So you want to be selective as you seek counsel. And you want to seek counsel from those who have a life motivated by the love of God. For those, from those who are allowing the Word of God to shape their own decision-making. Seek, seek counsel from them. Seek counsel from those who are seeking to honor God as they live. And seek counsel from those who are experienced in the issues that you face. 
some of us are further along the road of life than others. You know how, see how I put that? Just to be sensitive to you. Further along the road of life than others. It means that some of us have seen some things that others have, haven't seen yet. We've faced similar circumstances. And you want to seek out those who kind of have been down the road a bit and seen those circumstances so that you can gain counsel from them. One young man really felt that his uncle was this kind of person, a person to whom he could go for good counsel. And one time he asked him, he said, Uncle Jed, how is it that you can advise me so wisely on such a range of decisions? And his uncle said, well, it's because I've had a lot of experience. Well, how did you get all that experience? Making bad decisions. But those bad decisions don't have to be repeated. That's the point. We can learn from them and move on. That's, what, that's why in your divine design, part of, those, part of your divine design today are the bad decisions you made in the past and how God has brought you through and how he'll use it today. So be selective and then be receptive as you seek godly counsel. Not like that CEO who thought he could argue with every point the pro was making, but sometimes we do that in very serious situations. It's not like we take everything lock, stock, and barrel, but we are there to, to listen with consideration, to see what this person can help us with. Now, as I mention this, a very practical thought pops into my mind, and that is I am thrilled to see that in a few weeks in primetime, Pastor Randy is going to be teaching a class on Christian coaching. This is what this is, increasing our ability to help others make good and godly decisions by just honing that skill a little bit. Some of you would be great to take that class and to be mobilized as those who would help others in the midst of their decision-making. And I know that Pastor Randy would be thrilled. But as we do that, we, we remember that motives and methods matter. This is all a part of how we make decisions that are good and godly in our life. Seek counsel as part of the method. And with that, I want to share a story in closing from the life of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan told this story about himself. It was from his own youth as he was growing up. Uh, one of his favorite aunts came to him one day and said, Ronnie, I want to uh, get you a pair of shoes for your birthday. And these are going to be custom-made shoes by a cobbler in town. They're going to be made just for you. So I want you to go down to the cobbler and, and meet with him so he can do the measurements and so forth. And, and uh, that will be my birthday present to you. So Ronnie went down to the cobbler in town there, took the measurements. And then the cobbler asked him a question. He said, well, do you want round-toed shoes or square-toed shoes? And he didn't know. He said, I, I don't know if I, I, what I want, so can I get back to you on that? And the cobbler said, sure. But little Ronnie never got back to him, never made the decision. Weeks went by, months went by, and finally it was his birthday. And at the party, sure enough, his aunt was there with the shoebox, with the shoes that were made. And when he opened it up, he saw that he had one shoe with a square toe and one shoe with a round toe. <laughs> and here's the point. If you don't make decisions, somebody will make your decisions for you. You are called to make good and godly decisions, and you can do it. Let's pray together. And in the quietness of prayer, is there a, a decision that you're facing? Have you considered your motives? How will you make this choice in such a way that 
it will honor God and show love for others. As you face the decision, is it who you are, this choice that you're making? Have you talked it over with wise counsel? And most important, have you prayed about it? Lord, help us not to run past you in the decisions that we make. Help us not to run away from you in the choices that we face. Enable us to say yes to the things you want in our lives because we know that what you want for us is always going to be best. And that's what we want. Show us the way we pray. And we thank you in advance, for we know that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The team is back to lead us in a closing song. Let's stand together as we sing. It goes like this. It's real easy. Sing along if you know it. We set our hope on you. We set our hope on your love. We set our hope on the one who is the everlasting God. You are the everlasting God. Let's try it together. You are the everlasting. We set our hope on you. We set our hope on your love. We set our hope on the one.
We have prayer counselors next to the organ by the prayer table, and they will wait for you this morning. As others leave in just a moment, if you want to slip forward, maybe you're in the midst of a decision or there's an issue that you face for which you need prayer. Don't go without it. They would love to pray for you and with you. But first, let's all pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we set on you. We trust you because you are trustworthy, the everlasting God. You see the end from the beginning, and Lord, we want what you want for us. So help us in this week ahead to demonstrate that we are the property of Jesus. May people see Jesus in us, in the choices we make and in the decisions that that we face, the words we say and the way we live. Lord, help us to be transformed by you. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.